Good morning, guys. So we're in the, um, coming towards the end of a, a series on the apostles at the moment. And um, yeah, it's, it's been quite good, actually. It's actually been a lot of fun. So uh, I was asked a few weeks ago to do one of these talks. And so I was looking through the various apostles that were left. And I decided, you know, Philip would be a fantastic talk. You know, Philip who... Um, and told Nathaniel, who was sitting under the tree, just come and see. Such a simple invitation that was so profound for him. And then then Acts, he goes uh, you know, to Samaria and sees a huge amount of people come to know Jesus. And then he goes alongside the eunuch. And you know, there's this wonderful thing about this guy who wasn't welcome into the presence of God. And yet God was going to him. I was so excited about this talk. And then I come across a little verse. That I thought, I, I probably should look what that means. And then as I realized, I realized that the Philip in the Gospels and the Philip in Acts is a completely different Philip. That was kind of awkward, because I had like half a sermon that was about this coming completely and utterly different. Just, just out of interest, did anyone actually know that they're two different Philips? Oh man, I could have done that anyway. <laughs> so with my slim pickings left, I decided that uh, I would go for Judas. I'm excited about this. Uh, just so you know, Judas was uh, intru- introduced in uh, Matt 10 um, and various other things. So as they're, they're listing the, dis- the uh, apostles, the disciples, and they um, kind of come across and they introduce them by names, by brothers, by relations, by Matthew, the tax collector, Simon the zealot. And then it gets to, and then there's Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. I mean, that's fairly ominous, right? So let me, uh, let me just pray. This is going to be a lot of fun. Father, I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for um, just the revelation that I've got from this. And I know that you've just ministered to me powerfully as I've been preparing for this. And Father, I pray that you would be the center of this message, that you would be the heart of this message, that this somewhat um, demonized man, we would discover that it was not as, as bad as we've seen, but either, neither was he good. But Lord, that there is a lesson for all of us to learn in this process. So have your way, I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Like most of you guys, I didn't become a Christian because I you know, wanted to follow God and obey everything he said. Truth be told, I became a Christian because I love me and I wanted help. You know, I was messing around quite a lot and making a lot of mistakes. And not only that, I was hurting way more people than I intended to do. And I knew that I needed help. And then God offered it. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty cool. And with the power as well. So I, I thought I'd give God a try. And so, uh, I, you know, like some of you, maybe you came to church for the same reason. Maybe you came uh, to know God because you want to go to heaven or because you don't want to go to hell or because you want a better life or because there's someone who comes here that actually you really like more than you've told them. Um, and we got a letter from someone else uh, during this week, actually, a Facebook message to Chris from a guy who visited last week. He used to come to this church. And he came because he wanted to impress a girl and kind of come alongside of her. But actually, you know, to summarize what he said, he said, I came for this girl, but I left with God. I mean, it was an amazing, beautiful message and just a gushing thankfulness. You know, whatever the reason why we first come to faith, it's usually for ourselves. You know, we come as consumers. And you know what? That's okay to start with. You see, we come like spiritual babies that need to be weaned. We come as, you know, just by taking and taking and taking and making a huge mess. But you know what? Your heavenly Father, who loves you so much and thinks you're incredibly beautiful, is just delighted that you're here. And that the mess that you end up making, and we do make a lot of mess, 
becomes utterly irrelevant to him. You can tell I've just had a baby, right? <laughs> we know it's okay. We know it's okay to start like this because this is how all of the disciples started. But eventually, healthy things need to grow up and face reality, whether that's good or bad. And that is not easy. When Jesus started talking about some difficult times ahead, namely that he was going to die, you know, Peter's the first person to come to him and say, no, no, come on, Jesus. You know, let's, I know you're having a bad day, but don't worry. Pick yourself up. You know, it's all good. We're going in a good place. There's, you know, lots of great news ahead of us. Don't worry. Don't give up. To which Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan. You do not have the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In other words, Peter, you're still a consumer. You're still a taker. You're only thinking of yourself. That's why when Jesus is arrested, all of his disciples scatter. They all abandon him. But at the end of the New Testament, they're back. More so, they would end up giving their lives for the resurrected Christ. Finally, they make the transition from a consumer to a fully committed follower of Jesus. They abandoned their own desires, their own agendas, and they took on his, even to death. But not all the disciples made that transition, as many of us know. Judas didn't. And today we're gonna to look at how it's possible to be an ordinary person like Judas, in the presence of an extraordinary God, and yet still make the same mistakes. So Jesus' absolute obsession was the kingdom of God, the thing he spoke about all of the time. Now all of the disciples misunderstood this, and they thought he was talking about this world power, that he was eventually gonna overthrow the Romans and take control of the world. And he was gonna force whoever he was off their throne and make sure that he was that one in the center a nation claimed for the Jewish people. And over the years, there have been a lot of potentials, there have been a lot of wannabes, but ultimately everyone failed. But here came Jesus, one who spoke with authority that no one else had ever come across. One who looked like he knew what he was talking about was making a lot of sense. So he was surely the real deal, the real thing. But unfortunately, Judas, who came alongside of him, had his own more personal agenda of wealth, of security, of success. And so if Jesus was going to rise to power, then surely he's the guy you want to hang out with because he's going where you want to go. And so Jesus, in his mind, decides that he's going to commit and stick to hanging around Jesus. But as time went on, things didn't match up with Jesus that Judas expected. You know, for starters, we were supposed to be overthrowing the Romans, and, and yet you seem to hang out with them, and, and then you seem to heal their families, and you seem to engage them. These are our enemies, Jesus. What are you doing and then more so, you know, his, the, the religious, the Pharisees, the uh, teachers of the law, these are the ones that are supposed to spot the Messiah when he comes. And you seem to be publicly humiliating them, Jesus. Don't you understand? Come on, you need to figure out some politics and come alongside of them and get them on your side so they're behind you for this case. And more so, Jesus, you know, have you thought about raising some money? We're about to go to war here. Have you thought about rallying your troops? Can we not be so passive and Judas had his complete and utter own mind. And all this time that Judas is watching this, he's grown increasingly impatient. He's not getting what he came for. I'm here every single day with you, God. I'm here every single day with you, Jesus. And I'm doing everything you tell me to do. So why are you not doing what I want you to do? 
After much waiting, they head to Jerusalem. And on the way, they stop in a place called Bethany. And they stop for a a meal in Jesus' honor um, with some close friends. Now, this turns out to be quite a pivotal moment for Judas. One that will ultimately be the last straw and the final um, decision and, and change the whole outcome of this. Now, you have to understand this. As I've already said, we all have an agenda We all want God to do something for us. And to an extent, we all have a bit of Judas inside of us. And as I said, to start with, that's okay. And God can meet our needs. And I find often with new Christians and people that just believe, God seems to answer way more of their prayers. I always love getting new Christians to pray for me. I I knew it was going to be answered. But at some point, your desires, your agenda, and your heavenly Father's agenda are going to clash. There's going to be a conflict. And it's at that crucial moment that you need to decide whose agenda is more important, yours or his. And that's, what hap- that's what's happening with Judas. Let's read this in Matthew 26. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a, a woman, this is, uh, we know this from other gospels, it's Mary, the sister of Lazarus and the sister of uh, Martha, came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume which she poured on his head while his, as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. I mean, we understand devotion. Don't get me wrong, God. You, you know, you're worthy of being anointed. But I mean, come on. This is expensive stuff. Do we need to, do we need to give that much to you? This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. We look at John's gospel, it actually adds a lot more detail, which is really good. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth more than a year's wage. That's a lot of money. Now, you can see from the dynamics there that what was happening was Judas had this thing in his heart and his mind. And what he did is he kind of sat alongside the other disciples and said, hey, have you seen this? This is crazy. And Judas isn't like you know, the masked demon in the corner. I mean, he looks like the other guys. The other guy's going, yeah, Judas. Judas is making a lot of sense here. And so they all jump into the same conversation. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. You see, Judas, Judas didn't really care about the poor. He was trying to grow his own war chest in preparation for the big world change that was about to come. He was convinced, so convinced he was, that Jesus was going to meet his expectations. Let's continue with Matthew. Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And she truly had done a beautiful thing. And I, wish, I really wish I could go into that because I've, I've dug into that this week and it's amazing. But in short, let me just say that the gospel writers, especially John and Mark, what they do is they put up Mary as an utter contrast to what Judas is. They put up Mary as one who, unlike Judas, who's got his own agenda, who has no agenda but to love and serve her God. And there's this wonderful change in dynamics. I love that word about worship. Really, we need to be abandoned in worship, abandoned in love. And Mary teaches us so much about how to do that. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me, said Jesus. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. 
Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. On hearing yet another reference to death and burial and the end of the world, Judas cracks. He said, that is it. I cannot take this anymore. This is getting ridiculous. I've patiently listened. I've patiently waited. I've done all that you've asked of me. It's about time you did what I came for. Then Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now this may sound utterly terrible. This may sound a horrible thing in hindsight. It's a lot easier to see that. But think what we can be like sometimes when we pray. We ask God for what we need and when we need it. And then when we don't need him, when he serves us no purpose, and when he's not answering our prayers, it's easy we can get into that place where we don't actually need him around. We kind of forget that he's there. We say, you know, you're like my pocket God. You know, I'm not going to take you on that holiday with my friends. I mean, that's going to be awkward if you came to that. I'm not going to take you on that business trip because, I mean, I plan on doing some things that you probably shouldn't see. But when I need that deal to be closed... You better be there, Jesus. I don't need you so much myself at the moment, but my kids are struggling, so, you know, don't don't worry about me. Can you go to them? We pick and choose as to when we want God, and yet we blame him when things go wrong as if he should have known and done something about it. You see, the problem is that that God that I've just described, that God doesn't exist. You ask how God could do this or how we could let that thing happen. But the God that doesn't allow bad things happen to good people is a God that has never existed, neither in Old Testament or New Testament. Jesus claims complete supremacy over our lives. You know, later when he's washing the disciples' feet, including Jesus's, He doesn't say, hey guys, just so you know, I'm your teacher, okay? So listen to what I've got to say. I've got some great things to say, and if you listen to them, you'll you'll learn, and you'll, you'll hear some wonderful things. He doesn't say that. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, because that is what I am. Now, it's one thing for someone to be our teacher, but it's a completely different thing for someone to tell us they have the utter right to tell us what to do in any situation. Our natural reaction to being told what to do is no different from the prodigal son. Just give me what is mine and leave me alone. You know, having just a teacher is like having a consultant, someone you can ask of their advice and then you decide what you want to believe in and what you want to action. And if a consultant offers you a solution, we kind of weigh up the costs and then decide whether it's worth implementing then or or wherever. And if the costs seem way too high, we say, well, thank you so much for all your advice and all your work, but, but no thank you. We're fine as we are. You know, some of you are, are consultants. I know a few of you are. I mean, you know, after all that work, the solution that you're offering is one that you have spent a lot of time planning, a lot of time investigating, and will greatly help that organization that you're trying to help. You know, imagine if everything that you as a consultant recommended was implemented straight away, regardless of the cost, you know, you know that that would make a massive difference. That that would save a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of energy, and a lot of heartbreak in the long run. 
You know that that would make the company more efficient, more productive. You know it would have better scalability, better prospects. They'd be more satisfied. And so you try to convince them. You try to tell them this is the best solution, but they say, do you know what? Actually, not now. Not now. We're okay as we are. That's going to cost a little bit too much. You know, we sometimes see Jesus as a consultant, our means to a happy, trouble-free life, which, when it suits us. But Jesus is not a consultant. He is the CEO. You may disagree with some of his conclusions. You may disagree with some of the ways he looks at things. But if you want to work with him, if you want to stay in that company, you have to do what he says. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean being perfect, and that's worth explaining. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean you make the right decision every single time. This is not about absolute obedience. This is you know, the good news, the gospel of Jesus, is that we are not saved by a perfect record, by doing everything right. It's by the unexpected and undeserved grace of Christ because of what he did on the cross. Our permanent record was taken by Jesus and he dies for us. He became, he became our substitute for our sins, our replacement for our punishment. And in exchange, he gives us his perfect eternal record that cannot be taken away. We will mess up. I will mess up. You will mess up. We all know that and we live together knowing that's true. But it's not about 100% obedience. It's about our willingness to obey, our willingness to listen, our willingness to follow. You see, the Bible declares Jesus as Lord and Savior. You cannot have him as just your Savior and not have him as your Lord. It's either all or none. And Judas had had enough by this point. Judas was fed up. He's fine with Jesus being his savior. He's fine with Jesus taking that position. He's fine with Jesus doing all the things that he said he needs to do. But to be Lord, to do it in his time, to do what he wanted, that's a little bit too much than he wanted to take on. It's time that Jesus, Jesus did what Judas wanted him to do. You know, people have often wondered for millennia why Judas did this thing. And there are actually a number of different um, ideas and thoughts and they all have some credit. But the thing that I... Um, I, I like, and the thing that makes sense most of all to me is that Jesus, sorry, Judas was trying to force Jesus to do something sooner, establish his kingdom. He was trying to get Jesus to speed up the process, to get what he needed much quicker than, than Jesus had said he was going to do it for his own monetary and status gain. Let's read on. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elderly and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. You see, this, this for Judas is the panic moment. This is where it starts to go horribly wrong. This is not what Judas had in mind. You see, the priests, the religious law, legal guys, the religious guys were supposed to hold on to Jesus. They were supposed to interrogate him. They were supposed to push him. You see, these guys had no power to execute him at all. And so Judas was thinking, well, if they get hold of Jesus, they would be forced. He would be forced. Jesus would be forced to tell him why he's here and what he's about. And eventually Jesus would cave and say, okay, guys, listen, I'm the Messiah. If you look at the scriptures, let me explain it. And all the religious guys were supposed to go, oh, I get it. And then get behind him and rally this to the, the cause. But one simple thing went wrong. He didn't stay with the religious guys. He ended up with Pontius Pilate. 
And so suddenly, he's in the hands of Rome. He's in the hands of someone else who's going to determine his fate. Someone who can do so much more than what the religious guys could do. And now, things are completely out of control for Judas. You know, when Judas had betrayed him, saw, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, he says, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Guys, guys, I'm sorry, I've, I've misled you. I've made a mistake. This wasn't why it was supposed to happen. You know, you don't understand. That's not, I, Jesus isn't that bad. Actually, I've made a mistake. I want to go back. I want to rewind time. I wish I could make that decision again. It was a mistake. But there's no going back for Judas. You know, there are some decisions that once made you cannot go back on. You cannot unmake them. Now, we can receive forgiveness for a lot of things. But the consequences, the outcomes of our decision, we have to live with. And this is what's happened with Judas but the only difference is, is that Judas is going to struggle to live with what he's just done. What is that to us, they replied. That is your responsibility. Sorry, Judas, you're going to have to deal with it. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away and hanged himself. You see, this mistake was far too big for Judas. Everything that he had wanted, everything that he had planned, had suddenly completely gone off the table. He had lost utter hope. He was overcome with remorse and had nowhere to turn. He had alienated himself from everyone. And Jesus was tried, Jesus was crucified, and then Jesus died. When we uh, begin to follow Jesus, we all have a plan, and we hope it aligns to what God's plan is for our lives, and if not, we say, my will be done, God, my will be done. But over time, you're increasingly aware there are competing agendas. To start with, it will feel like a moral obligation. You know, I, I shouldn't really think that way. There's something I shouldn't do. I shouldn't be fooling around with that person. I shouldn't be drinking that much. I shouldn't treat that person like I do. I shouldn't do that kind of thing. It's in that moment where you know that there's a conflict because your conscience is lighting up. And sometimes they're obvious things, but sometimes... It's not even a bad thing. Sometimes it seems like there's a wonderful job on the prospect and, and you feel like, actually, as good as it looks, I probably shouldn't take it. Or you know, maybe it's a, a relationship that you're seeking and for all intents and purposes, they look amazing. But again, you just feel a little bit uncomfortable like you shouldn't be with them. It's just not what God wants for you. And you tell others it's no big deal and maybe if you've been a Christian for a while and you've learned the phrases like, oh, I have peace I have peace. God, I'm confident that God is in this. And so you put on this thing and everyone's looking at you going, it doesn't seem right, but they do look like an amazing person. You're telling me you have peace. Okay, we're with you. But actually, that's not what's going on. Underneath the service, there's this massive war being fought, this battle that's, on, that's happening. Because your will and God's will, your agenda and God's agenda are completely in conflict. As you battle, it will feel like a death. You may have to walk away from the opportunity of a lifetime. You may have to walk away from that dream job or that dream person. I mean, anybody become a, could become a Christian, but not everyone can be that cute, right? And we start to convince ourselves, God, no, I'm not entirely sure you have the best agenda here. 
These moments will feel like death because that agenda you're giving up in some cases is so central to who you are that you cannot imagine living without that. Yours and God's agenda are in conflict. This battle, this encounter, forces this defining moment. And it's in those moments that you discover who you truly are. Are you your own man? Are you your own woman? Who's calling the own shots, but every now and then you like to call on God as a consultant when something's not right, perhaps. And then you could take his advice or you could leave it. Or are you a child of God? Are you sure of your father's love? Are you certain that he has plans for you? Plans not to harm you, but to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. This is the moment where you need to decide if what he wants for your life is more important than what you want. And the only way you know, one way to know that you have made that decision is by asking yourself two questions. First of all, am I willing to do whatever God asks me to do in this situation? Now, don't get me wrong, that's a tough question, but that's a fairly simple yes or no. The second question is this. Am I willing to thank God? Am I willing to praise God? Am I willing to worship God regardless of the outcome? Now, that's a lot harder. That's a lot more difficult. Because you know sometimes if you're doing something wrong and God's asking you to stop it, that's fairly obvious. But when it feels like you're actually missing out on something because of what God's asking you to do, that's a whole lot harder. Something entirely different. It's in the midst of this battle that you discover whether God is just your consultant or whether you truly belong to God as your Lord and your Savior. This is the moment when you say, this is hard, but God, I want what you want more than what I want. I want what you want more than what I want. As we're about to see with Judas, when we face our defining moment, Jesus doesn't tell us what to do and then stand back and and see if we will succeed or fail. Not at all, he doesn't do that. And while Jesus doesn't stop Judas from doing what he wanted to do, and if you think about it, that's pretty scary. He did do something else. Jesus tries to melt him, tries to melt his heart. Judas's defining moment takes place at the Last Supper. Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. You know, I love this. Again, it's that image of saying none of the disciples realized that Judas was this guy who had all this stuff going on. It's easy with hindsight, but no one had a clue. But actually, the most amazing thing is in some of the gospels, they actually almost turn around and say, are you talking about me, Jesus? Is it me? Now, I think that's an amazing question that we all need to ask ourselves, rather than sometimes it's easy to look at someone and go, yeah, they're the bad guys, pay attention to them. Like the disciples, we need to be so astute sometimes that we go, are you talking about me? Am I the one betraying you? Am I the one wanting my stuff more than what you want for my life? One of them, the disciple Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to the disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Leonardo da Vinci's painting, you know, where they're all on a straight table, all lined up, horrifically wrong depiction of this. 
Actually, what happens is the table, this Last Supper, is in this kind of U shape. And everyone's got their kind of feet out and they're leaning on the table with their left arm and eating with their right. And the thing about that is if everyone's doing that, what happens is you end up leaning to the person who's next to you. And we know from this story that the, G, um, the John is leaning into Jesus and we can tell from the story that Peter's leaning into John. The question is, where's, Jesus, uh, where's Judas in this? And I love this. This is a guy called Andreas uh, Kostenberger, commentary, com- whatever the word. Um, he says this, it is the place of Judas that is of special interest. It is clear that Jesus could speak to him privately without the others overhearing that it be so. Then there is only one place that, Jesus, that Judas could have occupied. He must have been on Jesus' left. So just as John's head was in Jesus' breast, Jesus' head was in Judas's. And when that meal began, Jesus must have said to Judas, come and sit beside me tonight. I want especially to talk to you. The very inviting of Judas to that seat was an appeal. He was describing that in this uh, ominous moment of imminent betrayal, Jesus was not sneering at Judas from across the room saying, I know what you're like and I know what you're about to do. Instead, he has drawn Judas as close to him as he would allow. Jesus answered, it is the one whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it into the dish. And then dip in the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. So incredibly dripping with meaning in itself. You know, in reading this story, you notice that Jesus continually brings the subject up, three times in fact, about someone who's about to betray him. And then he personally serves Judas some bread, another gesture of special affection. Why is Jesus so discreet? Why is he so careful? Why won't he tell anybody else or announce it to the crowd? I'll tell you why, and this is absolutely crucial for us to understand. Because he's not trying to shatter Judas. He's trying to melt his very heart. He's not trying to condemn Judas. He's trying to convict Judas. He's not trying to oust Judas and say, look, you're not one of us. Go away. He's kind of trying to get Judas to understand how much he loves him and what he's about to do. If he hadn't said, if Jesus hadn't said, I see you, Judas, there'd be no chance for repentance. He has to do some conviction. Equally, if he had trampled him in front of everyone else, there'd be no chance for repentance either. Far from testing him, the one who convicts him is also the one who longs to comfort him. He says to Judas, I see you and I love you. Come on. I mean, how do you play with your kids if they're about to break a toy? You say, come on, stop. I can't see what you're about to do. See what you're about to do. Just be a little bit more careful. Careful, careful. Bella was playing on the couch the other day and she was, um, had this little toy in her hand and it was so obvious that she was about to drop it and probably break it. And ultimately she did. I was begging her, Bella, Bella, calm down. Come off the couch, put it down. And then she dropped it behind the couch and she looked over and she said, oh, daddy, it's gone to Jesus. (laughs) 
some of us are at that table with some pretty bad things in our lives. Things that you wouldn't want anyone else to know. Some of us have this almost uncontrollable anger that we cannot seem to overcome. Some of us carry this incredibly heavy burden, this shame. Some of us consumed with jealousy. And some of us have fantasies that we know we shouldn't entertain. We are filled with guilt. We're filled with shame. Some of you are tempted. You're facing an option. You're facing a decision that actually, actually seems quite a good option. But you just sense, you have that inkling, your conscience is lighting up, but God's saying, no, not this one. Not this one. And because he knows far more than you do, he's saying no, and he's not going to change his mind. But because he loves you, and because he knows that this is a battle for you, he draws even closer than you can possibly imagine. Jesus is not going to stand up in this room and tell everyone of that thing that you're struggling with, that thing you're ashamed of. He's not going to make it publicly known. That's not Jesus. The loving Lord and Savior is here to melt your very heart. He says, I see you. And I love you. I want to get rid of those things that you're harboring. I want to deal with those things that you're struggling with, that are tearing you apart. I want to help you make the right choice. And he's not just saying what to do and telling us to get on with it. He's saying, understand what it means when you do those things. And drop the things that are keeping you from full submission to me. I am your life. He's saying, I'll take you by the hand and I will lead you. I will give you the strength. I will be your strength. And our reply should be, Lord, your patience has melted my heart. Could the band come up, please? You know, in that moment, the temptation to say this is to say that this is too hard a thing, Jesus. Uh, you know, to be honest, I'm, this has gone way beyond than I imagined. I, I'm off. You know, I'm, I probably won't come back to church for a while. I, I probably don't need you, to be honest, God. And then as time passes, you realize your way is not making sense and it doesn't work out. And then you come back, maybe. And the most scary thing is your father won't stop you. But he will try to melt you. He will try everything he can to convince you that he loves you. And it's in those moments I ask of you and I ask of myself that we would just pause. Pause for a second. Pause for a moment and pray a fairly simple prayer. A prayer that I'd like us all to pray if that's okay. Would you mind standing and bowing your head and closing your eyes? And I'll pray this prayer and if this is a prayer that you want to pray, a very simple prayer. And then just say under your breath, amen to it. And by all means, come down and get some prayer after the service. Let me pray. Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father. The one who knows me through and through. The one who loves me completely. Heavenly Father. To be honest, I don't actually want to give up that thing. That option, that decision, that job, that relationship, whatever it is, I honestly don't want to give it up. 
But heavenly Father, for your perfect love's sake, I want you as both my Lord and my Savior. And I want what you want more than I want. For some of you, that's quite hard. You're not in that place. And try this. Lord, I want to want what you want more than I want. Judas resisted your loving grace, but I don't want to resist any longer. I may feel like I'm failing, but would you take me to the cross where your love never fails? Take my hand and lead me into life.